Grateful for the presence of everyone here this morning, and I encourage you to be taking out your Bibles and turning to uh, put a marker in Acts chapter 2. Put a marker there in Acts 2. We'll begin in uh, Mark 15 in just a moment, but we'll be spending most of our time uh, this morning in the second chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our series of studies uh, that we began on Friday evening. On Friday evening, we began discussing a number of character changes in uh, the Scriptures as we look at these different Bible characters and the kinds of changes they made and what led to that and how we take and make that uh, application of that to where we can uh, grow stronger in our service to God or if we realize we're not in a right relationship with Him to make the changes that we need to make to be in a right relationship with Him. On Friday evening, we began by discussing Solomon who went from being wise to being worldly to being wise. He had earthly wisdom and showed great wisdom in the way he handled situations. But then he allowed his wives and concubines to draw his heart away from God and became worldly before finally returning to being wise, but this time having more than just an earthly wisdom, having a wisdom from above, realizing what's really and truly important. Last evening we discussed Peter who went from denying the Lord to dying for him. There's a man that stood in the courtyard and said, I do not know him, and uh, was very adamant about it, and yet he gives his life eventually because of his service to God and what it is that led to that change in Peter. Last hour, we discussed the Philippian jailer who was on the verge of suicide and then obtained salvation. And then this evening, we'll come back to that fourth one there in a moment, but this evening, or this afternoon at 3 o'clock, we'll conclude our series of studies by talking about Paul who went from being a persecutor of the faith to being persecuted for the faith. But this morning we want to focus for the next few moments on those who went from being crucifiers to Christians. Now this is a little different than the other studies in that uh, all four of the other studies were studying one single character. Solomon, Peter, the jailer, Paul. This morning we're going to study about 3,000 of them who made a change in Acts chapter 2, who went from being those that, as we'll see in a moment, was pointed out were responsible for the crucifixion of Christ to being those who obeyed the gospel and became Christians. So let's begin by understanding those on the day of Pentecost were crucifiers of Christ. In Mark chapter 15, in Mark chapter 15, uh, there was a crowd shouting out to crucify Him. In verse 11, uh, the chief priests stirred up the crowd of Mark 15 and uh, they stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. He would release a prisoner and he wanted to know who he wanted to release and they chose a man guilty of insurrection and murder and they said, put Jesus to death. He said in verse 12, uh, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted, crucify him. And so here there are those here in Mark chapter uh, 15 that as uh, the question is raised, what should I do with Jesus? Their reaction is, you should crucify him. And as Pilate tried to talk to them, they cried out all the more to crucify him. Crucify him. They wanted to put him to death. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus was taken in Mark 15, 21 through 32 to uh, Golgotha and was crucified. And as you read throughout the rest of the account, eventually gives his life there. But there were those of the crowd there yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. Well, in Acts chapter 2, 
as Peter is delivering his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and we looked at this briefly last night when discussing Peter, but we'll look at this sermon in more detail this morning. In verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He said, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Later on in the chapter, in verse 36, he said, to let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Those standing here on the day of Pentecost listening to Peter, and he points out to them, you're the ones who crucified him. You're the ones who put Jesus to death. Well, here they are, those who are part of the, part of these, being part of the crowd, likely out shouting, crucify. These who had, were responsible for his crucifixion, and here they come at the end of the chapter and become Christians. They're those that obey the gospel and become Christians. After Peter's sermon, about 3,000 people were baptized. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. What were they added to? Well, they were added to the church. Verse 41, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. If you have a new King James or a King James, it will say, and the Lord added to the church. The word ecclesia appears there in the new King James and King James. And so it says he adds to the church. Well, who's added to the church? Those who were saved, according to verse 47. And it's those that are disciples, those who are part of the church, who are those who are later called Christians. In Acts chapter 11. In Acts 11, beginning at verse 19, here's where we have uh, disciples first called Christians. But just look at what is said about uh, them leading up to being called Christians. Beginning at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so those who obeyed the gospel in Acts chapter 11, for the first time, are referred to as Christians. Those who had been added to the Lord. And in Acts chapter 2, that's what those who had obeyed the gospel were. They were added to the Lord. And so they are now disciples, or as we refer to them more today, as it was referred to in Acts 11, they are Christians. So here are those who are crucifiers of Christ. 
They shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Now, they're Christians. What changed? What changed in these individuals that they went from being crucifiers of Christ to being Christians, to being those serving Him? Again, as I've said in the other studies, this is a very drastic change. This wasn't a, a small change. It wasn't, well, we need to get a little bit better. This is, uh, we put Him to death, to, we now believe in Him. We put Him to death, and now we believe He is indeed the Son of God. We realize He was raised from the dead. What is it? that caused such a drastic change in them? Well, those who are present changed from being crucifiers to Christians because, number one, they believed that Christ was raised from the dead. They believed Christ was raised from the dead. In fact, the bulk of Peter's sermon was focused on the resurrection. We pointed that out last night. We pointed out last night how in Peter's sermon, he comes to him and he says... In verse 22 and 23, 22 he speaks of Christ's life. He was attested to you by signs, by mighty works, and by wonders. He talks in verse 23 about how he was put to death, and that's the extent of his life and his death. The rest of it is about the fact that he's been raised. And that's what he spends the majority of his time arguing. He says, you've crucified him, but let me tell you, he wasn't left in that grave. God raised him up. And look at what he'd point out in the verses that follow. That should be 24 through uh, 36, right there. 24 through 36 on that point, on C. In the verses that follow, here's what he points out. Verse 24, he's raised because the pangs of death were loosed. Look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He says he's raised from the dead because God has loosed the pangs of death, verse 24. He's raised from the dead. In fact, David prophesied of this in verses 25 through 28. Look at 25 now. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now we'll look at 29 through 36 in more detail in a moment. But Peter's going to point out in verse 29 that David's not talking about himself when he said that he would not abandon his soul to Hades or let his Holy One see corruption. He points out, David died and is buried, and you can go to his tomb. His tomb's still here. He was speaking of someone else. He's speaking of Christ. And what he points out is that Christ is raised from the dead, and the Bible told us that's going to happen. You go back to the Old Testament, and it told us that. David prophesied of it in, in Psalm 16, in verses 8 through 11, where he talked about him not being... Uh, the pangs, or he talked about him not being abandoned to Hades. And then off of that, and connected closely to it, he argues that he's raised and thus exalted. God has exalted him. Look at 29 beginning now. Brothers, this is the verse we alluded to a moment ago. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, 
that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which, uh, that you are yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You know what Peter's arguing here to them? As he's saying, you put him to death, but God raised him. He's not in that tomb. By the way, that's why it's significant that he was put in a tomb where no one else had ever been laid. You couldn't go to a mass tomb where a bunch of people are and say, well, how do you know he's not here? How do you know he's not one of the many people in this tomb? But he was in a tomb where no one else had ever been laid, and that tomb was empty. And he points out to them that he's been raised. God raised him up, just like the prophets prophesied of. And now, having been raised, he's exalted to the right hand of God until his enemies be made his footstool. And it's after this that they come in verse 37 and ask a very similar question uh, to what we saw the jailer ask this morning. He said, what must I do to be saved? They said, brothers, what shall we do? What they realized is that Christ indeed was raised from the dead. And if he's raised from the dead, then they needed to make some changes. But not only did those who crucified Christ become Christians because they believed that Christ was raised from the dead, they changed because they believed that Jesus is the anointed one. The Jews had been looking for the Messiah, or Christ. In Psalm 2 and in verse 2 it says, "...the king of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together." against the Lord and against His anointed. And so, there are those that would, uh, were looking forward to the Messiah or Christ. We use those terms interchangeably. Messiah being the Old Testament term for anointed one and Christ being the New Testament term for the anointed one. And so in Psalm 2, when he said against the anointed, they're in opposition to the Messiah or Christ. And they've been looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And what Peter does in his sermon is point out to them that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for. He is the anointed one. Again, verse 22 and 23, He was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. I want to believe if He truly is the Son of God and who He claimed to be, that He's the Messiah. Look at all the things He did while on this earth. From raising the dead, healing the blind, feeding 5,000. Look at all the things that Jesus did. He was attested to them by mighty works and wonders and signs. It's evidence that He is who He claimed to be. And then that should be verse 36. He tells them He is the Christ. Again, the word Christ uh, is the from the Greek word, we get it from the Greek word meaning anointed one, and Messiah being the anointed one. That's why we're saying they knew, realized he's the anointed one. In verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, 
He's made him Lord and the anointed one. The anointed that according to Psalm 2, there would be those in opposition to. The one that they've been sitting back and waiting, when's the Messiah going to come? And what he's pointing out to them is, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the one that, that people have been waiting that, could come, that was coming so that man could be saved from his sins. And it's this realization that led to the change to those that obeyed on the day of Pentecost. In fact, again, he told him in verse 36, he's Lord and Christ or anointed one. It's verse 37, they say, what shall we do? You see, it's the realization that Jesus is the Christ. It's the realization that Jesus is raised from the dead, which proves Him to be the Christ, that leads them to change. <coughs> Excuse me. Leads them to change on the day of Pentecost. Now, that's not the only thing that led to their change. They changed because they were cut to the heart. Look at verse 37. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It's after Peter's sermon, they're cut to the heart. Their hearts were pricked by the gospel message. They've realized now as they hear this lesson that they've been guilty of sin. They realize as they hear this message, they are responsible for crucifying the Son of God they realize they've got to make some changes in life because they put God's Son to death. They realize they're not in the right relationship with God. And this leads them to making a change. You could say their conscience was guilty and they're cut to the heart. Those... You remember as a little kid you did something your parents told you not to do? And you went and did it and then all of a sudden you thought, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. Maybe sometimes as an adult that happens. You do something and realize I shouldn't have done that. And then you hear something and it cuts to the heart. That's the idea here. They're cut to the heart. Their conscience was guilty. They realize we're not what we need to be. And because of that they realize we've got to change. We can't stay in the condition we're in. We are lost. That's why they then turn and say, what shall we do? They wanted to know what they had to do to make a change. Which leads us to our next point. Not only did they want to know what they needed to do, they were willing to do whatever it took. They were willing to do whatever it took to change. Peter in Acts 2 is preaching the first gospel sermon to them. He's preaching to them for the first time the gospel message after Christ's ascension into heaven. That's significant for a few reasons. It's a significant event. Here's the start of the church in Acts 2 and all of that. But it's also significant because those present don't know what they need to do to be saved. We often talk that uh, there are many here that, as we often refer to it, were, quote, quote, raised in the church. We grew up going to church. And every Sunday you get to the end and you hear the preacher say, if you're here and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, we repent of your sins, confess your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism. We heard sermons on it from a young age. We knew what it was by the time we got older we had to do in order to be saved. Here are individuals that they're hearing the sermon for the first time and they turn to Peter and say, what do we need to do? They don't know what he's going to say. They don't know what he's going to say, they don't, what he's going to tell them they need to do. But they, they knew they needed to do something. And they want to know what is it that, that we, it is we need to do. 
Their attitude seems to be that whatever they must do, they would do. They look at themselves and say, I know I need to make some kind of change. And I don't know yet what it is I've got to do, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that I'm in a right relationship with God. They were willing to do whatever it took. No matter how big or small the task is that they were given. No matter how difficult it may have been, their reaction seems to be, you just tell us what it is that God requires of us and we're going to do it because we want to make sure we're in the right relationship with God. And that's exactly what they did. But not only were they willing to do whatever it took to change, they changed because they realized salvation is an individual matter. Peter in verse, 30, in verse 37, they ask him the question what they need to do. In 38 and 39, he gives them the answer. But then it says in verse 40, that with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Some say, be saved. The better idea there is it's, it's active. Save yourselves. God's done his part. Christ's done his part. Now it's our job to do our part and do what he commanded. And what they had to realize is it's an individual matter. They, those that were present had to obey individually. They couldn't go, okay, well, who's the head of this household? All right, well, you obey, and now all your households say. They couldn't do that. They couldn't say, well, you know, what is it that... Uh, look at it and say, you know, well, your, your parents are, are, are in a right relationship, or your brother, or your sister, or your children, whatever it is, your spouse, and so you're fine. Salvation's an individual matter. No one could change for them. Nobody could, tell, could force them to change. Nobody could change for them and then them be in a right relationship with God. It was up to them. That's why they changed. They realized they, only they could make the change for themselves. And that's something you and I have to realize today. Sometimes uh, we may look back and be like those of Israel who, who are sitting back and they're boasting that we're the seed of Abraham. And so it didn't matter to them that they weren't in a right relationship with God, that they weren't what they needed to be. Their reaction was that they should be just fine because Abraham's their father. And sometimes today, if we're not careful, we may find ourselves... Looking at ourselves and thinking we're fine because we were, again, quote, raised in the church. Or we grew up going to church. Or our parents are in a right relationship with God. Or our, our spouse. Or, or we go to a church that's doing what they need to do. And what we've got to realize is they may be doing that, but I've got to do my part. Nobody else can just carry me into heaven. That's what they had to realize. They had to obey themselves. I wonder how many more people might have changed if they could be forced to change or if their family could have changed for them. About 3,000 were saved that day. I'm sure in that were some families where part obeyed and part probably didn't. And it didn't matter that some would have obeyed. What mattered is it was an individual matter and they all had to change. There were about 3,000 that obeyed that day. Estimates would be, would be that at the day of Pentecost, there would probably be one to two million people in the city of Jerusalem at least. Those people aren't saved because a great number of people were baptized that day. 
The only ones who were saved were the ones who did what was commanded of them. It was those who were cut to the heart and then responded in obedience to the gospel. Because salvation is an individual matter. And it doesn't matter what our friends, what our family, it doesn't matter that we may be going to a church that believes and practices the truth if we're not willing to do, believe and practice it ourselves. We're not going to get into heaven on what others have done. It's only if we've done what God has commanded of us. And that's what they realized that day. As Peter told them, they have to save yourselves. And they did. They obeyed God's word and were saved. Which brings us to our final point this morning. They did what was commanded. Just like we saw last hour with the jailer. They did what was commanded. We already saw they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart and they were willing to change. And that's why they asked the question, what shall we do? But again, as we said, not only were they willing to do whatever it took, or did they at least think they were, they then, there were those who were present that those who did change, changed because they then actually followed through with what was, they were told to do. Peter told them in verse 38 that what they needed to do was repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. By the way, he tells them again, repent and be baptized every one of you. Again, showing that it's an individual matter. He told them to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And then there were those who, verse 41, were baptized for the forgiveness of sins and were saved. So those who received His word were baptized. And there were added, to them, uh, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's those who received the word. Not just those who were here and present when He said it. There would have been those that were present and heard what He said but didn't obey. It's those who then received that, then made that application that we talked about last hour. They, they weren't just hearers of the word, they were doers. They acted upon it. And when Peter said, what you've got to do is repent and be baptized, what they did was, they repented and they were baptized. And they were added uh, to the church. They were saved. They now were Christians. They see, they made the changes because not only did they, were they willing to listen to what was said, not only because they were willing to make changes, they made changes because they then were willing to follow through with what was said and what they were told to do. And when Peter says, you've got to repent and be baptized, they repented and were baptized. Again, going back to what we talked about earlier, on our fourth point, they were willing to do whatever it took. And that's exactly what they did. Then, after doing that, those who were present went from being crucifiers of Christ to being Christians. And to tell you, that's a drastic change. To go from putting Christ to death, from shouting, crucify Him, to believing that He's raised from the dead and being willing to do whatever His Word says. That's exactly what they did. They went from being crucifiers to Christians. How did they do it? Well, they believed that Christ was raised from the dead. They believed that Jesus is the anointed one. They were cut to the heart. Their, conscience, their, their, their heart was pricked. They felt guilty for what they'd done. They then were willing to do whatever it took to change. They then had to realize salvation was an individual matter. Nobody could be saved for them. And then they did what was commanded. And then, and only then, did those who were crucifiers of Christ become Christians. Then they have a right relationship with God. So that when life on earth was over, they could have that hope of heaven. Here's a question for you this morning as we come to a close. Are you in a right relationship with God? 
Do you have the kind of relationship with Him that when life on earth is over that you can have that hope of heaven? If you don't, what you need to realize this morning is salvation is an individual matter. Nobody can be saved for you. You and you alone have to make that decision to obey the gospel. But if you're here and you've heard the word of God and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, why not do whatever it takes to change? And what he told us is we need to repent of our sins, confess our faith in Him, and be buried in the waters of baptism. Rising and walking in the newness of life, having your sins forgiven, as Peter pointed out to those on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and in verse 38. And then you can have that hope of heaven, having had your sins washed away, knowing that if your life was to end or if Christ was to return, you could be with Him forever. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but you say somewhere along the line I've not been as faithful as I needed to be. If it's a sin of a private nature, you can take it to the Lord privately in prayer. But if it's a sin of a public nature, you desire the prayers of the congregation. And we'll gladly pray with you and for you this morning for God to forgive you. No matter what your need is, if we can assist you in any way, which you're not conform right now, so together we stand and as we sing.